It is, of course, Noni Hazelhurst. Noni, thank you for joining me today. Good day, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It's an awesome privilege. So many questions. Um, you're approaching 50 years in the television industry. And if you had have retired before making the Voxdale series The End, you would have been known as one of the most wholesome, loving people portraying generally <laughs> mostly wholesome characters. The Shera Lee, which I love, Play School, Better Homes and Gardens, A Place to Call Home. And that would have been that. However, you have decided to show a very different side of yourself in the end playing Pamela. Did you take the part purely because it was a good role or did you want to deliberately show a whole different side of yourself to the public? Well, all of the above. I think all actors, you know, want to play different kinds of roles um, to avoid being typecast. And I think it's important to, you know, well, I've got a low boredom threshold basically. So, <laughs> you know, I've, six years of playing Elizabeth Bly was a long time to play someone very stitched up and proper um, and disapproving and, and so on. Although she did have a, a nice journey towards the end where she fell in love for the first time and had a beautiful husband. But um, I took the role primarily because the whole series was so beautifully written and, and I thought very relevant and important in its subject matter. Um, but also because the character was a complete contrast to Elizabeth Bly. I mean, you know, I, I have done nude scenes when you were probably watching me on Play School in films like Monkey Grip and um, Waiting and things like that. But it's been a while since I got my teeth. <laughs> Well, talking about that, I mean, I happen to fit into the, to the exact generation being born in the early 80s that uh, knew you through your presenting role on Play School and then followed your career through Better Homes and Gardens, City Homicide, A Place to Call Home as, you know, some of the popular ones. So yeah. to see you bear all in the Foxtel series, the end was a, like, it was a real shock. Bearing all in a, in a movie or television show is not taboo at all. But um, did you have any thoughts behind that your Play School audience were about to see their idol get naked i mean what would jemima and Te big ted think oh jemima and big ted get up to all sorts of nefarious activities when the lights are off um <laughs> well look i did i, I narrated a uh, i read a book a few years ago which is i think still on youtube um it was sent to me by the publisher called go the fuck to sleep written by a father whose child didn't sleep and i I think they wanted me to endorse the book and it's, it's um, presented like, a, it looks like a children's book. Um, and it, I laughed like a drain when I saw this because my first child didn't sleep through the night till he was two. And, uh -huh. and a lot of parents, you know, a lot of parents have this issue and they suffer in silence and uh, it's, it's very gruelling and draining. So I, I insisted that I read the book um, in the style of play school and and that caused a bit of a furor at the time but um everyone survived and and i think i sort of i think i trended on twitter um for a couple <laughs> of days that your generation were going oh my god no one swears so they had a little bit of a shock over that but look I, you know i i don't think of the audience as a sort of big amorphous group i tend to just think of there's only one person watching at a time and and that's what play school taught me so the criterion for accepting something is, is this a good story worth telling and would I watch it? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then I'm happy to do it, whatever it is, whether it's radio, television, film, theatre, presenting, whatever. 
Well, I, a good story we're telling is, of course, the end. Um, let's dive into it. It's, it's unlike mm. any uh, Australian series you've ever seen. This is not packed to the rafters. If someone asked you uh, about what the series was about, what would you say? And I know that sounds like a simple question, but it seems overly simple to just say it's about death or about life in a retirement village. It seems to be so much more than those two things. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it sounds glib, but and sort of ridiculous. But to me, it's about the struggle to live and the struggle to die. And it covers three generations of a family, um, female, female women, female women, of course, they're female women, um, <laughs> three generations, the, the teenagers, the mum and the grandmother are the central characters. And they're all oh gosh, they're all living very fraught lives, as are most of us. Um, and, and I think the fact that no one's pretending to cope very well. Um, mm. Everyone is struggling it is a very accurate depiction of life as most of us live it, um, as opposed to so-called reality shows, which bear little relationship to reality. Well, what a performance in the show from Harriet Walter, by the way. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. Mm. I really feel mm. there was something to take away from the show in terms of, I mean, there's age, living, death, friendships, family, suicide. I find it hard to articulate exactly what it is that I took away from the from the show because I took so much, but it, it takes on a whole different approach to the area of suicide, for example. It makes me feel very differently about the subject. What do you hope the audience will take away from the show? Well, again, you know, I don't think you can generalise, Aaron. You know, everyone is going to have a different response to it because everyone has a different experience of life and a different environment in which they grew up. And I think, you know, I, I hate the categorisation of anything as a drama or a comedy because to me, like life, a drama has to have funny things in it and a comedy for me to work, for, to work for me has to have serious things, which is why I love Ricky Gervais's work because it has such heart and such depth underneath the humour. Um, and if we try and categorise things, we're reducing them. And, and life, you know, I hate it when people say, oh, if you put that in a movie, no one would believe you. Why not? Life is mad. Life is crazy. And so to me, the interesting stories are the ones that reflect that craziness, you know, that, that the, these shafts of universal crap that come down on us from a great height with no warning in life sometimes. And the, the occasional moments of beauty and joy that are balanced by the grief and the tragedy, you know, so life is very complex and we are all very complex, but so often our stories tend to reduce us to two dimensional creatures, which I think is just not helpful. I wanted to pick you up on what you sort of mentioned about Ricky Gervais. I gather you watched, um, have you watched Derek and Afterlife? You know, um, yes, you know one of them absolutely. being set, set in, a, in a retirement village. Did you get any inspiration from that with the role? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Um, I haven't watched all of the, all of his work, but I've seen episodes of, of all of his series. Um, uh, no, I didn't get inspiration from, <laughs> from that. I mean, really, the character that I play, Pamela, it, it, within this retirement village as opposed to home, um, sh she's a fish out of water and quite happily so. She's only there because it's easy to live there and she doesn't have to worry about the gardening and, you know, it's, it's a comfortable way for her to live. Um, but she's certainly not like or considers herself not like the other residents who she considers a bit daggy and a bit 
you know, a bit white bread and um, boring. So, you know, this is why she's attracted to Edie, Harriet Walters' character, because she senses that there's someone here who's got great depth to her and who potentially needs a friend. And I yeah. think that's what, what draws her to her in, in, in the series. Another interesting sort of subplot in the series, uh, Kate's young son in the series, played by Morgan Davies. I assume mm-hmm. he, w- he was supposed to be a young teenager in the show. In one of the early episodes, as he's navigating his sexuality and discovering that he's gay, he goes to a festival-type place where he takes a drug, presumably something like ecstasy. Anyway, a group of female singers come towards him and he's kind of hallucinating or whatever, and they start singing gospel Jesus sort of music to him, and their heads all turn into vaginas. And You know. <laughs> yes. And... Um, <laughs> Folks, um, I'm not making this up. There's actually a group of vaginas singing to him. It, it's another sort of, I suppose, shock scene in inverted commas. Looking beyond the shock of that scene, what were the creators trying to tell the audience? Or was it obvious? Don't tell, don't take drugs, I think. <laughs> probably. Don't take hallucinogenic drugs. Um, look, I think, I think <laughs> Sam, Sam Strauss, the writer, who's quite remarkable, she has an incredible imagination. And, and again, you know, if, if um, you, you hear stories about what people see when they're on hallucinogenic drugs and, and there's no reason why that wouldn't be part of it. I mean, if you've been to the Mona Art Museum in, in Tasmania, there's a whole mm. wall full of vaginas. So, you know, it's, it's not the first time vaginas have been seen en masse. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think with his struggling with sexuality and stuff like that, the fact that there's all these vaginas coming, he's really struggling with his sexuality, but it's really mm. done in a very overt way. But um, interesting. Um, Thought-provoking, yes. Yeah. The, the, the series couldn't be any more timely um, as Australia are really lifting the lid on how elderly people are treated in nursing homes and retire, retirement villages and the like. What has been your viewpoint on the uh, elderly and what happens in aged care facilities? Well, gosh, you'd have to be a very strange person if you weren't horrified by, by what we've been learning um, and, and by the cold-heartedness of so many of the places, you know, by the, the people who are running so many of these places where defenceless old people are being fed on food budgets of 4 and $7 a day and yeah, you know, there's a staff shortage, which causes the staff to be harassed and and um, overworked beyond belief. I mean, it is a disgrace, and and the way our culture marginalizes Western culture marginalizes old people, I think, is a very sad thing, um, mm. because you know, with age comes experience, and you know, in some cases, in many cases, some wisdom. Um, and I remember years and years ago. Um, on an Anzac day, there was one of the original Anzacs was still alive. He was about 104. And this yeah. young buck reporter was at his retirement home and said, well, Jack, what's the best thing about Anzac day? And this dear man said, well, for about two weeks every year, people don't treat me like I'm an idiot. Oh. And that just was a sucker punch for me because I thought, I'm as guilty as anybody at the time of not finding very old people particularly interesting. And the reality is everyone has a story. And, and when you scratch the surface and you show some interest, people's stories are very, very much engaging and, and you can learn from them and relate to them. 
So I think, I think, you know, if this government doesn't take some action, I think it's yet another reason to change them. For sure. I've actually got my, uh, my nana's in a nursing home and I tell you what, it would be lovely for someone like Pamela to pop in um, and to <laughs> stir them up a little bit. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit grim there sometimes. Um, yeah. You've covered a, a lot of timely issues in the end, such as age, sexuality, quality of uh, in life and so on. So I wanted to ask you about play school and the mm. themes that have come out of the show as we walk through a brave new world. I think you might remember, of course, the controversy when the show started, when a little girl had two mums um, and they referenced mm. the two mums in the show. Should play school remain, and I put this in inverted commas, innocent, and I apologise, I can't think of a better word than that. Or do you think it's okay to say things like, you know, Johnny has two dads or Johnny has a very special friend called Jackson that he likes very much or Johnny was born as a boy, but now he likes to be a girl and, and to be called Josephine. I mean, how far should we go or not go uh, down I think road? adults should. I think adults should stay out of it. Play school is for preschool children and they're very accepting. No child is born a bigot. No child is born a racist. No child is born, you know, with, with a judgment um, inherent in their nature. They learn that. And play school really has always been at the forefront of, of just saying this is a situation and, and a three or four, five-year-old child will go, oh, okay. It's the adults who get their knickers in a knot because they think that we're infecting, you know, that their children's minds are being infected. No, their children's minds are not being infected. Their children's minds are taking in influences from everywhere around them. And if they're told that something is bad or horrible or dirty, then it is, but if they're not, they will learn themselves what is acceptable and what they can cope with. And, you know, they'll learn that people are very different. I mean, Native Americans have seven different words for gender in their languages. Wow. It's not just binary, you know. So I think adults can be incredibly closed-minded and, and young children are much more resilient than we think. Um, and we should be very careful about about proselytizing and saying that play school should or shouldn't do anything. A child watching Johnny has two mummies will just go, right, good. Yeah. It's lucky. How come? You know, they're not going to judge it. They're not going to be, they're not going to go, oh, I want two mummies. You know, they're just going, oh, okay. Yeah. So I think we try and put, um, it, 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 to me, it's just making a fuss about nothing, truly. Can't you find something to change about the world that really needs changing, like the condition of old people in nursing homes? Hundred percent, hundred percent. We've actually already covered some uh, some big issues. So uh, in this chat, so let's go one more. Women in television. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look back at television, the landscape, and and think of you know Australian television icons, mostly males will come to mind. However, there are some notable exceptions. Yourself, um, you know, I think Yana Vent, Magda Shavansky, Ruth Cracknell, Tracy Grimshaw. I mean, there are there are some, but it's a very male-dominated industry. The tides are turning, but I'm wondering if you think they have turned enough. Is it still a male-dominated industry, or are women getting treated more equally now? Uh, it's a male-dominated industry and a male-dominated world that we live in. So until, you know, it's recognised that 51% of the world's population um, should represent 51% of everything else, then it's going to be male-dominated. Um, I think things are changing and I think women have had it up to pussy's bow with 
uh, centuries of, you know, of this garbage going on. It really is pathetic. And it's coming out in an avalanche now because women are being encouraged to tell their truth and they're getting the airtime. <laughs> you know, there's enough female journalists now that are insisting that these stories get heard and be told. And there are some enough female producers and directors now that these stories are starting to be told and it will only increase and get better. Um, and I think, you know, the next female prime minister will not have to suffer what Julia Gillard suffered. Um, yeah. You know, there needs to be a, a trailblazer, but, you know, when you look back at the treatment that she got um, and the, the dreadful, dreadful stories that we're hearing now about swinging dicks and, you know, the whole culture that's prevalent. I think there's an overemphasis on show business, on, on the things that are going on in show business because we sell papers and we, you know, we are clickbait, but this goes on in every workplace, every mm. work. And women have to go enough. And I think the old diehards are, you know, the old diehard blokes are dwindling, but it is a very slow process. Well, hopefully we take the lead from a, a very small island across the uh, across the uh, ocean in New Zealand mm. with, with their, um, they always seem to be in front of uh, a lot of issues um, for such as, you know, much smaller population. So maybe we'll uh, yeah. learn something from them. They seem to be a much more tolerant, cohesive society and have, have been for some, some years. Well, let's talk about Australian drama. Now, it seems the days of older completely gone when a network would make 80 one-hour episodes of say a country practice per year or around 40 episodes each year for blue healers or all saints or something like that with the onslaught of reality television australian drama really has taken a back seat i'm just wondering why is that is it just the cost is it the lack of appeal by the australian audience or is it just that not good quality drama is being produced it's the cost it's the removal of the quotas it's the cost it's the the um, chicken and egg argument of, you know, what comes first? Do the audiences desert the networks because they're not showing enough good stuff? Therefore, the advertisers, advertisers you know, don't want to spend the money. Um, it really, it comes down to money and, and reality television is a lot cheaper to make than drama. And yet, you know, the, thank God for Foxtel and Brian Walsh and Penny Wynn when she was there. Um, Brian, as I've said to him, you know, he's the Hector Crawford of his generation. Hector Crawford was responsible for many of the wonderful dramas that are still on air today from in the 70s and 80s. It's where I cut my teeth in television, um, starting with, you know, guest episode, guest leads in episodes of cop shows and ending up with the Sullivans and the box. Um, but yeah, it's purely money. Um, and I think audiences love good quality drama. I mean, play, A Place to Call Home is being seen all over the world and has this active international fan club that posts stuff every single day. Um, so, you know, a good quality drama is, is going to go well if it gets the right promotion. But I remember, you know, when Channel 7 cancelled A Place to Call Home after the second season, we, we opened with great fanfare in the first season and lots of publicity, couldn't catch a cold to publicise the second season. Mm. And it started going on later and later and later and later at night. They they showed two episodes one Sunday night without warning. Um, and eventually I think one of the last episodes went to air at about 
20 to 10 as opposed to 8.30. I mean, they just scuttled it. Mm. Uh, the same thing happened to Between Two Worlds. So, you know, they, they, I guess at that point they had to fulfil their quota. So they had to commission some drama. But, you know, those quotas are being reduced, um, which they've wanted to do for a long time. But now under the cover of COVID, they're saying it's, it's more necessary. Um, so, yeah, it's a financial thing, unfortunately. But the good thing is it's a lot easier to make shows now. I mean, you can make shows on your phone, you know, so... Yeah. There are, there's a lot of creativity coming up with, with people doing it themselves um, without having to go this circuitous and torturous route of endless co-producers and, and deals. And, you know, it's very easy to just make some entertainment yourself. And I mm. think that gives me great hope that, you know, other, other great ideas will get a Guernsey that might not have if they'd had to go the traditional route. I ask about the, the appeal of Australian... Uh, dramas though because I mean this is just my view if you if you look at what Foxtel are doing they're producing like keeping up with the times and producing different things I think oh this is really interesting this is different whereas the commercial Mm. networks are quite often coming up with a formula that like there's a a fairly good Australian drama Amazing Grace that started on nine it's okay but it just feels like it's the same premise of something like House Husbands that they had on before like it's the same sort of thing and I'm wondering do you think people are getting tired of I suppose commercial television producing I guess the same kind of drama whereas if you really wanted to look for something different I mean the end just would not be on the commercial channels they're just not going to make that sort of show. You have to turn to Foxtel or a streaming service for an Australian drama to really see something different. Would you? Yeah. Well, and also I think that the end wouldn't be the same experience if it had to be an hour with ads. You know, I think one of the great strengths of it is that it's half an hour with no breaks. And so it's really punchy um, and and it's not interrupted. Um, one, One network executive once said to me about a rival network that they're never afraid to try something old. And I think that's that's sadly true. You know, they want cookie cutter, predictable television. And if you're writing a story that every 10 minutes has a commercial break, that's going to dictate the, the style of the story. It's going to it's got to end on an upbeat to go to the commercial break. And yeah. then there's got to, you know, it, it, and so it's it, that's why a lot of it feels the same, I think, often, because it's written in this format that is, again, not reflective of real life or conducive to telling a cohesive story. Um, you know, we've, we've all been in lockdown, so we've all got used to watching things uninterrupted. And I think that's gonna be really difficult for the free-to-air networks to get, to get the audiences back because of that. Um, certainly from a, from a drama point of view, yeah. Is there a kind of drama you would like to see on television? Like, what are we missing? Is there something you'd really like to see as a particular story? Oh, wow. Well, something starring me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, of course. Of course. Um, look, I think, I think we just need to keep trying. You know, the, the, the problem really is a lack of great scripts um, or scripts that aren't developed enough before they go into production. I think that's as true often of movies as it is of television and often theatre. Um, you know, a good script takes a lot of work. Um, you can't just write a story and then have a bit of an edit and go into product. Well, you can because people do. Um, but I really think we have to have an appreciation of more of an appreciation of, of what goes into a good script. And I think with Sam Strauss's work on the end, 
I imagine that they got all the actors they wanted first call because it, it just leapt off the page as being, you know, above and beyond what we normally see. So it was really inspiring. But I, I don't know what we're missing. I think I'd like to see more real comedy, um, you know, with that sort of dramatic undertone. Um, yeah. I think that's rather than rather than more of the family dramas, you know, I think family dramas and coming of age stories and, you know, I'm a bit bored with all of those. Look, I know this is a question everyone asks, but I'm I'm going to ask it anyway. What what role brings you the most fondest memories? I mean, for me, it was the probably the Shirley. Um, I I love that. Um, mm. and a, and a place to call home. When you look back, what's your fondest memories? Look, they've all they've all had their moments. Mm. Um, but the thing I'm most proud of, I think, is probably play school, because oh. I did it for 24 years, and I ended up writing some episodes and. And I felt it taught me so much about communication and about how important it is to protect young children from the influences that we're all subject to, which affect us all. But, but you know, at least we can turn them off or turn away or choose something else. Um, so I think, it, it, as I said, it taught me so much and it put me in an incredible position of, of trust with, with audiences, um, you know, when you do something like that for 24 years, that's a lot of two-year-old generations. And so yeah. it, it gave me a, a, a very wide demographic, if you like, which I'm really conscious of and, and very grateful for, um, which I took into Better Homes and Gardens. And, and, you know, apparently we widened that demographic so that a lot of kids started watching Better Homes and Gardens. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's the thing that, it's the most enduring thing that I've done. And it's the thing that m most people talk to me about um, with clarity, you know, that they're, they're absolutely certain that they know me from that. Whereas other people might go, were you in prisoner? You know, so, okay, no, sorry. <laughs> um, you mentioned in there better homes and gardens. Um, I have to ask like from an outside perspective, it appears to be the gig of the century. I suppose a good paycheck to do straight presenting to camera and then get lots and lots and lots and lots of free renovations on your house. What, I mean, that's just from the audience perspective because there was a lot of um, renovations being done. W was it the gig of the century or was there more to it than what people would believe? Well, what would you think? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like your, your house is getting renovated like every episode. I mean, you must have yeah. knew, knew everything. Yeah, it, look, the end result was great. The process of getting there was was pretty torturous. Um, I mean, I took the gig because I had, Charlie was six, I think, at the time. Yep, William was one. And I couldn't be, and we lived in the Blue Mountains, so I couldn't be going away to work all the time. It was just not on. So when I was asked to do this, I, I thought long and hard about it. And I thought, I said, as long as I don't have to be I don't have to be an actor pretending to grout because I don't do that stuff. Mm -hmm. I just want to be, and, and people know me as Noni. So I just want to be, I want to do it from home and I want to do it as me. So here I am, I'm a mum feeding my kids. They're not sleeping. Um, you know, so I wrote all the hostings myself um, oh. and, you know, I'm planting a veggie garden. So it was a kind of play school for adults approach, I guess. Um, and not, and I didn't, and the, the thing about play school that I loved is that it was always 
don't assume people have got access to expensive toys or you know anything it's always about making the best of what you've got mm. and so I, I very much wanted that philosophy behind my persona on better homes so but I mean you know when <laughs> the reality was that the crew would arrive at sort of six o'clock in the morning they'd yeah. had a long drive from the city and we had one bathroom and I had mm. a six-year-old and a one-year-old and the bathroom was right next to the kitchen. So um, plus the builders would arrive and the set dresses and everything else. All of my furniture would be taken out onto the back lawn, come what weather may. Um, they all used the bathroom. They all stopped and had coffee in the, in the kitchen while I'm running around with these two little kids trying to get one to school and one fed and dressed. And um, it was the days of fax machines when we started and the night before filming about 80 pages of notes would come through the fax machine which had to be cut up and collated for the for the ideas that had to be done and so on um so it was pretty much 24 7 for the first couple of years until we we said we need an assistant because this is just beyond anything um and and of course the children have to be kept out of the way because there's lights and cables and all sorts of things so i, I had to employ a local friend to um, you know, do things with the kids. So it wasn't it wasn't all beer and skittles, but it was a fantastic, secure um, job for me for ten years, and I was I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. I did a couple of short things in films and a couple of plays as well in that period, but primarily it enabled me to not have to go away. So that was that was the best thing about it. But you know, our marriage also broke up halfway through so mm. uh, you know it, it put us under a lot of strain and um, I did the last five years as a single mother so my my hostings reflected that yeah we sort of watched the family and and everything with the show um, we watched William and, and Charlie basically grow up so yeah. can you tell yeah. us about the boys and what they're up to now and how they're going sure um, Charlie my oldest son is now 33 three oh. year, I think. Um, yes. yes, we're all getting old. Um, he lives in Melbourne. He's married, no children yet, but talking about it soon, which would be lovely to have some grandchildren. Um, he's a, a drone pilot and uh, wow. he, he could have gone into show business, but chose not to. He's got a wonderful singing voice, but he prefers flying planes, uh, flying drones. Um, William, my youngest son, who's now 27, is in America with his wife. Uh, he's a musician, composer, um, singer. He's, he goes under the name of Saint Rien, R-I-E-N, French for nothing. Um, <laughs> and he's, he's had a difficult time during, uh, because of COVID, but he's been recording his original music and he's just completed a clip, a video clip of one of his songs and he's moving to Nashville, so from wow. LA, because he says LA's just had it. Um, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping that they will be able to do some work now, now that it's easing slightly over there. Not a lot, but slightly. You, you've had your life in the public eye, obviously a lot, in your children as well, to a degree. Obviously, in, William played your son in City, uh, City Homicide. Yeah. Your ex-husband has been in the public eye for various reasons. I would love to know what... what uh, to know 
look, there's usually two camps. If you sign up to be a celebrity and you put yourself out there, then coverage of your life is fair game in the media. The other camp says, well, celebrities are also real people with strengths, weaknesses, you know, family tragedy, family trauma, and so on. And delving into someone's personal life is cruel and unfair. I'm just wondering where you sit um, or fall in terms of media coverage in the life of a celebrity in general. How much right to privacy should a celebrity have? Oh, look, I think it's up to the celebrity. You know, you can put yourself out there and, and go to the opening of an envelope if you want to, or, or you can, you know, live a quiet life uh, when you're not working. And I, that's my, cho- my choice. Um, I pretty much have to be coaxed, you know, um, onto a red carpet. Um, uh, yeah. You know, the publicising of things is something that we have to do per contract. It's not something we want to do necessarily. Um, and obviously you want, you know, if you're proud of the product, you want people to see it. So you're happy to do interviews and so on. But um, I, I certainly am not, uh, I don't go out of my way to, to attract publicity to myself. And, and, you know, I mean, you just draw the line. You just, if someone asks something that you don't want to answer, you just say, I'm not talking about that. So, you know, it's up to you. I think what disappoints me though, is, you know, when you look on say Google news, under entertainment and and you might click on the daily mirror say and there's nothing in there about entertainment that all that's there is people behaving badly you know all that's there is is what they're wearing or falling out of a nightclub or their relationship breakups and nothing to do with the work that they do Mm. you know that seems to be um uninteresting for for i don't know to these editors um, so it's you know is it entertaining to just have gossip? I, I I would have thought entertainment meant what's on, what can you go and see, who's in town, you know who's entertaining us um, through their work rather than through their slip ups. Well, you, you mentioned that it's hard to get you onto the red carpet and things like that. But the <laughs> other other thing that people would have noticed is you do very little reality shows. I'm guessing you've been offered things like dancing with the stars or I'm a celebrity or a celebrity apprentice or something like that. Is it a deliberate action on your part to avoid the big celebrity shows or you just haven't been offered the right role? Uh, will we ever see you on one of those type of shows? No, no, they, they don't interest me in terms of my participation on any level. No. Um <laughs> No, <laughs> not at all. I don't watch them. Um, so why would I expect anyone else to? Um, no, I, I can ritually humiliate myself without any help. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, although this is a question I tend to ask people. I find it interesting. I don't know if they do. But it's um, have you had any roles that you were offered and turned down and the show ended up becoming a hit? I, I always think it's interesting when you find things out like Will Smith was actually offered the part of Neo in the Matrix films and then he oh, turned wow. it down and then it eventually wow. went to Keanu Reeves or something. Was it something that you were offered that people might know of and then it's like, you know, it, it could have been packed to the rafters with Noni Hazelhurst or is there, is there a show that, that you maybe turned down that you can mention? No, there isn't really. I mean, I, I turned down a lot of stuff, but nothing that went on to be an amazing smash hit. Um, mostly I, the reasons I turned them down is the reason they don't become a smash hit because they're not good enough um, or they don't interest me or enough people. So mm. I, I do, I've always turned down 
a lot of things, um, not only on a quality criterion, but also because I've either played that kind of role before or uh, I felt that the character wasn't rounded enough or I wasn't happy about the people that I'd be working with or, you know, there's a whole plethora of reasons why something doesn't, doesn't gel for me. But, mm. um, I mean, the main thing is if I read a script and by page five, if I'm starting to say the lines out loud, I know it's caught me. Mm. You know, if I'm starting to sort of inhabit that character, um, I know it's, it's piqued my interest. Um, but, no, most things it's pretty clear to me by about page 10 that it ain't a goer for me. I was interested to know if you watch your own work and you enjoy it. Some celebrities say, I never watch my own work. Do you actually sit down and watch A Place to Call Home or The End just as a viewer would when it, when it, when it airs? Sometimes, um, not religiously. I, I, haven't, um, I haven't seen all of The End um, I'll be honest, I haven't seen all of A Place to Call Home. Um, uh, and, and often I'll watch it much later. Um, I used to watch, well, when I started, we used to have rushes after filming mm. and you'd go and see the, you know, yesterday's what you'd shot yesterday in the editing room with, every, with the whole cast and crew and you'd all sit together and watch it. Now they don't have rushes for cast and crew because it's all sort of digital. Um, but yeah, I it's often it's a, it's an exercise in self-flagellation when you watch yourself because you just think, oh my God, what possessed me to do that? <laughs> um, but but I do think it's important, particularly for for younger or less experienced actors, to watch themselves because you can see when you make mistakes and and you can see what you could have done and should have done, um, and so that's that's a really good way to learn the you know, cinematic technique, if you like. But, yeah, I, I watch sporadically, but not religiously. Okay, I wanted to ask you, um, your, your son William played your son in City Homicide. Now, this has kind of stuck with me over the years, so hopefully I've got this right. I'm picturing your son either drugged or tied up in a bathtub and water filling yeah. the tub up, and there's a race against the clock to find him. You sort of go rogue to find him yourself, and you get there um, into the bath, and it's too late. He, he's died. Now, first of all, have I got that right before I ask the question? Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, it's close, yep. Yeah. So I was just wondering how hard was those scenes to film? I remember being very emotional for you at the time to, um, and, and for the audience and seeing him passed away was just horrific. I remember that thinking that this would be one of those scenes where they get there with one second to spare. Um, but in this case, he had died. Was it super emotional in that it was your own son dying in your arms? I mean, even though it was acting, of course, or, or did that make no difference? Oh, it was horrific. Uh, if I'd known that that's what they planned, I would never have put him up, you know, suggested him for the, for the part. Um, it was really difficult and it freaked us both out quite a lot. Um, but, you know, it made it authentic. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really tough. It was really tough for him, it, I think, as much as me. It just seemed at the time, um, watching that, like it was almost like there was no acting in there. That was, it looked like you actually really struggled with that. And it was, a, you know, it was, it was quite horrific or, or it was, of course, very, very good acting. Well, I mean, to me, acting is easy. Being is hard. Being in the moment, being true to the circumstances of the character to the best of your ability 
it doesn't mean that you become the character, but it means that you inhabit it with yourself in a way that feels authentic. Yeah. And, you know, I had no difficulty feeling authentic in that instance mm. because I didn't have to create a story. <laughs> um, you know, I just had to imagine imagine that this was the truth. And when you, do, when you can do that as an actor, then you do appear to be authentic because it's coming from a truth. Mm. On a um, side note, that was certainly a show that, uh, that died before it needed to. It was actually a great show. Um, as we round out this episode, um, let me ask you a couple of holistic questions. You seem to have ticked off uh, many types of roles in your career and had many different opportunities. Is there anything you haven't done yet, a type of role you feel you've missed or that you would like to do? Not really. I, I mean, I'd love to direct again. I directed a, a feature-length telly movie for the ABC in 1985. And um, when I had my first child, I realised that directing was not going to be something I could realistically do as a mum because it's sort of 25-8 as opposed to 24-7 when you're directing. But I'd love to direct again. Um, but as, as in, in terms of playing roles, no, I, there's nothing that, that I'm hankering after apart from a good story. Um, but I am getting to the age now where a lot of the roles that I um, sent, you've either got Alzheimer's or you're dying or, you know, it'd be good to keep the meaty roles. Ellen, Ellen Burstyn, the actress, um, she, she's 80 something now, nearly 90, mm. I think. And she said, I just get so sick of these roles where I'm losing my mind or, mm. uh, you know, there's something wrong with me. And, and again, it's that ageism, you know, that, that people, People can't be interesting per se. Um, uh, I've got a movie coming out in, in May called June Again, um, where I do have um, dementia, but it's a great story because she has a, a strange turn and she gets herself back for a little while, mm. which can happen. Um, and, you know, the family in her absence has stuffed everything up in her mind. And so she has a, a period of trying to make it all right. Um, that had, you know, that role had some good meat in it, but I, I, I just hope that there are some roles coming along that in whatever medium that, that are um, people who are not dying <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, people who haven't lost their marbles. So it doesn't sound like you've got any signs of slowing down. So you've got that movie coming up, um, coming out next. Um, so mm -hmm. what is next for you? Is there anything in the pipeline at the moment? Yeah, well, I've, I've had a pretty rough year, as everyone in our industry has had. I think I had three days of paid work up until mid-January for a year. Um, that was a podcast. But, um, yeah, I've, we're doing some more episodes of Every Family Has a Secret for SBS. I'm hosting another oh, yeah. documentary for SBS, uh, which is still filming. Um, I've got a, a nice role in a series, a, a guest lead in a in a short form series that I can't tell you about coming up. Um, and then I've got a nice role in a movie that I can't tell you about coming up. So um, it's, it's been a pretty quiet period. So it's nice to know that, um, you know, it's picking up again. I, I hope that all the poor people who haven't had any support from this government uh, have managed to survive the last yeah. year. The 660,000 workers who um, were not eligible for JobKeeper Oh. even though they contribute $111 billion to the GDP. But, you know, hey, what do I know? I'm just a warm prop. No, not at all. That's, 
yeah, a lot of casual people, obviously, in, in the industry, and yes, we're not eligible for anything. It's that was hideous. Yeah. yeah. Finally, I wanted to ask you about your famous smile. Now, I don't know if you get asked about this in, in other interviews. I mean, you have a very unique smile. It's almost a trademark, very hard to describe, but you're one of those people that it's not just about lip movement, but your entire face smiles, including your eyes. Are you fully aware of the impact of your smile? Is this something that people actually ask you about? I don't know if I'm the first person or the hundredth person to ask you about that. It's, it. It's like when you're acting or presenting, it's like, we're waiting for it. Oops, oops, there it is. There's the smile. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I have, it has been mentioned to me and I'm, I'm aware that, um, you know, that people like it, I guess. Um, also my voice, people recognise me from my voice. But um, just a funny story regarding my smile. Um, a, a while ago, I went to a, a, a dentist, to do, a new dentist, <laughs> and I, I chipped a tiny bit off my front, one of my front teeth. And I asked him to fix it and he, he fixed it and he gave me the mirror and he'd filled in the gap between my front teeth without oh. asking me. Oh. And I just, I freaked. I said, how dare you do that? I said, I'm known for my smile. Could you please chip that cement out from between my front <laughs> teeth and restore the teeth that I had? Um, but I think, you know, I, I think smile... If a smile is sincere, um, it, it's always going to be noticeable. And I and I try to only smile when I'm being sincere, not just for the sake of it. I think that's perhaps makes a difference. What a beautiful thing to be known for, though, is, is someone's smile. It's not your grumpiness or anything else. It's actually your smile. That's be a lovely thing to be known for. So, Well, I think where I live, I'm known for my grumpiness. <laughs> I think my family know me for my grumpiness. Um, but yeah, you've got to have a, a nice witchy laugh as well to counter it, counter it, the grumpiness. <laughs> On that happy smiling note, we might leave it there. Thank you so much, Noni. What a television legend. Um, your time and insights are so much appreciated. And uh, thank you for joining me today. My absolute pleasure. Great to talk to you. Noni Hazelhurst there, nothing short of being Australian TV royalty with the best smile in the business. You can catch The End on Foxtel Tuesday nights at 8.30 on Fox Showcase or watch the whole season on demand.